I want to begin with a story, and I don't know if you're familiar with a book by the name of Everything I Really Wanted to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. It was written by a guy by the name of Robert Fulgham, and it was written many years ago. And it's a, basically, it's a compilation of, of real-life stories, tidbits, um, essays about real life, about the way that real life operates. And after he wrote that first book, he, he wrote a second book, and the name of the second book was, and I don't know why this name, but... The name of the second book was, It Was on Fire When I Lay It Down. Well, in this book, a more recent book, he tells the personal story of a man by the name of Alexander Papaderos. Now, Alexander Papaderos grew up in a tiny Greek village on the island of Crete, and he eventually became Dr. Alexander Papaderos, and he was a famous Greek philosopher and a Greek historian. Well, Dr. Fulgham invited him because of his uh, philosophy because of his understanding of the Greek culture, invited him to come and to speak. And and another reason why he invited him to speak is because um, this man, when he was young, when he was on the island of Crete, when when the Germans came in and invaded, they basically wiped out everyone. And he survived. And because of how he survived and because of his story, he was invited to come and to speak by Dr. Robert Fulgham. So he spent two weeks speaking to all of the people. And at the end of his last lecture, he simply asked all of the people a question. He says, are there any questions? Nobody really responds. And then Dr. Robert Robert Fulgham asked him kind of offhandedly, what's the meaning of life? And everyone was getting ready to leave. Some laughed, some were ready to dismiss themselves. And this is what Albert, Dr. Albert Papadero said, I can answer that. And he looked right at the guy who asked the question. And it was kind of silent and quiet for a minute. And this is what he said. He took from his pocket a small mirror about the size of a quarter. And he said when he's growing up in the war, he found this broken glass Um, on the ground, and basically it was from a motorcycle crash, and he could find just a small part. And what he did was he picked up the biggest part, and he began to to smooth out the edges and make it round and make it smooth so we could tuck it in his pocket. And what he did was um, he would would use it to, to play a little game, and he played with it as a toy, and it became fascinating for him to do something that was really kind of interesting. What he would do is he would take that little quarter sized piece of mirror, and he would begin to find the light and reflect it into dark spaces, into very, very dark crevices and dark corners and dark holes. He was trying to get the light, if you will, into these small little places. And he would do this any time that he had an opportunity to do so. And this is what he said. This is what he told the people. He said, I kept that little mirror, and as I went about my growing up, I would take it out in idle moments and continue the challenge of the game. As I became a man, I grew to understand that this was not just a child's game, but a metaphor for what I might do in my life. With what I have, I can reflect light into the dark places of this world, into the black places of the hearts of men, and change some things in some people. Isn't that interesting? Here is a man who survived the invasion of Germany, and recognizes that there were dark places deep inside the human heart of individuals. And what he felt his responsibility now was to do was to use his God-given talents and abilities so that he can reflect light into the dark places of the human heart. Doesn't that sound a little bit like what you and I are called to do? Didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 60, in the same way, 
let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Didn't Paul write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the light of the glory of the gospel is Christ and being allowed to shine in our heart so that we can be an example? In Ephesians chapter 5, didn't he say, you are now children of light. Reflect the light that is inside of you so that you might draw people to the ultimate light. Jesus is the ultimate light. Don't we see that as our responsibility as we go into the dark places of this world, maybe our families, maybe our, our, our schools, where there's this darkness that people don't really know and understand necessarily who Jesus is, and we have this great privilege of bringing the light? Do we reflect the light of Jesus Christ no matter where we went? This morning, in our text from the book of Colossians in this series, Look Up, what I want to do is I, I want to take us back to the book of Colossians. And, and Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And in this, is I think what we have in this text is this. Paul gives a personal testimony of his life, a personal testimony of how he lives his life and how he sees his role, not only as a minister, not only as a servant of Christ, but as a, a part of the body of Christ. And the role and the responsibility that he sees and challenges us with is this. Be a light that shines in dark places. Be a light that comes alongside of fellow believers in the body of Christ and allow the spirit of Christ with the word of God to build us up and be a family as God has called us to be. Listen, it's a dark world out there. And what we need is we need to come alongside each other and to help. So Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let me just read the text and then let me pray. This is the word of the Lord. Notice what Paul writes. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for all of those who are at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Let me just pray. Father, this is the Sunday after Easter. And Father, we thank you for once again the great privilege of being able to gather as your children and to listen to the word of God, to respond to singing to you, to lift our voices in praise to who you are and what you've done for us. And Father, I thank you for the privilege. It is a privilege for us to gather this morning as your family members. And Lord, I ask that you would open our minds and our hearts so we would see the wonder and the beauty of your word. Father, that through the Holy Spirit of God, you would teach us the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Father, that we would know and understand these hidden treasures that are open to us in the word of God. Father, we give ourselves to you. Father, we just simply delight in who you are and ask that you speak to us this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So I, I believe what we have here is a personal plea from the Apostle Paul about uh, how he's to live our life. And, and, and the way that this is going to unfold is this. He's going to talk about a struggle, that we're all in this struggle. And then he's going to say, in the midst of this struggle, I want to strengthen you. 
And I want to strengthen you in two ways. I want to encourage you, and I want to cause you to be united in love. And there's a reason that I want to do that, because I want you to have a full understanding of who Jesus is and all of the wonder and beauty of, of, of Christ and what he's done. And the reason I'm going to do that, because there is a protective measure in the body of Christ, that when we gather together, when we formulate together, when we encourage and build each other up, that we protect each other in the body of Christ. We protect ourselves from deceit. We, we cause stability and firmness to begin. And that's where he's going to go. And that's why we're here this morning, so we can listen and learn. Notice how Paul begins this in verse 1. He says this, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you. Who These are the people at Colossae, right? These are the people at Colossae. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and those at Laodicea and all who have not met me personally. Now, now listen, don't forget the nature of where we find ourselves here. Paul, most likely, is in a Roman prison. He's heard about this church in, in Colossae. Epapro, uh, Epaphras has come to him and told him about the church. But there's also a church in Laodicea, and also there's a church in Aeropolis. Let me show you a map. There's kind of this network of churches, and you can see it kind of in the, in the, in the middle here. Ephesus over here, 100 miles away, but there's this cluster Laodicea, Colossae, and there's this cluster of churches all together right in the middle here. They're about 10 or 12 miles away. And what Paul is doing, he's writing to the people of Colossae, but he's already talked about Aeropolis, and he's already talked about Laodicea. So you have these three network of small churches gathered together, separated by maybe 10, 12 miles. And notice what Paul says. He says, listen, I haven't seen you, never been there, but, but, but I'm struggling for you. I, I'm, I'm agonizing over you. I'm, I'm wrestling over you. My, my heart is burdened for you and who you are and what's going on in your life. Paul was concerned about the welfare of these people that he'd never met. And by the way, they're 1,300 miles away. You know how far away that is? That's from here to Glacier National Park. 1,300 miles. That's a two-day drive in here. Paul separated from them by 1,300 miles. His heart is burdened for these people. Jesus said this, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Do you see that? Do you see the nature of this battle that you and I are in? Paul talks about in, in, in chapter 3, verse 15, this, this earthly nature that's inside of us. Yes, I'm redeemed by who Jesus is. My life has been changed and transformed. But every once in a while, this sin nature rears its ugly head, and I go off and do things that I don't want to do. I recognize there's this battle deep inside of us. Paul mentions that. And then in chapter 2, verse 20, he says this. I, I want you to, to be careful that you don't fall prey to the basic principles of this world. The basic principles of this world. What does the world want to do? The world wants to conform you and to close you in and to capture you and change your mart and your high, your minds and your hearts into thinking worldly kinds of thoughts away from who Jesus is and what he wants. And by the way, if you don't believe the way that they want you to believe, guess what they're going to do? They're going to shame you for what you believe. You come out with a Christian worldview about the nature and the character of God, about who Jesus is, and you don't embrace certain lifestyles, certain manner, certain things like that, so you are going to be shamed because of your belief. And that's the, the, the tendency that we have. And by the way, do you realize that when you got up this morning, even before your feet hit the floor, you were in a spiritual battle? There is a demonic being. The thief comes to kill, to rob, and destroy. And he doesn't take, he, he doesn't take a day off. 
So we have this, this earthly nature inside of us. We have these principles going on all around us, and we have this, this being who wants to get us off this track and destroy our very lives. And Paul says, listen, in the midst of all that, I want to be a source of help. In the midst of all the things that are going on, I want to be a source of What I want to do is I want to come alongside of you, and I want to be able to encourage you and build you up in the faith. Paul has already written about Epaphras, the one who brought them the information, the one who brought him uh, the information about um, Colossae. And, and notice how he describes him in Colossians chapter 4. Verse. Notice the role that Epaphras had in the life of Paul and the life of the early church. He writes this. He says, he is always, Epaphras, what? He's always wrestling in prayer for you. That you may be able to stand firm in the will of God Mature and fully assured. Part of the wrestling for Paul, part of the wrestling for Epaphras was this. This idea is I'm going to wrestle for you, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask that God would intervene for you. I'm going to go before the throne of grace, and I want to encourage you. I want to help you because I'm going to pray for you. Let me ask you, is, is that an part, important part of your life? As you see people around, as you see people that come into your life, is there a poor Part of your life where you want to write their name down and say, listen, I'm going to commit to praying for you throughout the remainder of this week. They're 1,300 miles away from the city of Colossae. And Paul says, listen, I'm struggling for you. I'm wrestling for you over prayer. And what I want to do is I, I want to help you. Now, let me ask you this. How, how much do you struggle for the lives of other people? How much do you struggle for that? See, I think if we're careful we begin to reduce our lives to only about ourselves and what we don't have, and we close ourselves off to people all around us. You know, in the book of Jude, in the book of Jude, it has a really interesting verse. It, right at the end, it says, some we snatch out of fire. In other words, some people are going in, in an opposite direction of where they should be going, and it says we snatch them out of the fire. In other words, they're going in such a dangerous place that we, as followers of Jesus, have the privilege to snatch them back and bring them back into the fold in the body of Christ. Are, are we burdened? Do we struggle for people like that? Yes, and we should be. Our hearts should be given to those in the family of God who are struggling in an incredible way. So what Paul says is, listen, what I want you to do is, are, are you struggling on behalf of people in the family of God? And notice what else he does. Not only do I want to struggle with you, I want to be empathetic to you, I want to strengthen you. I want to strengthen you. When you leave here every Sunday morning, I hope that you're encouraged. I hope that you're built up. I hope that the word of God is prominent. I hope that God speaks to you. Because when you leave and you get in your car and you leave, life is difficult and life is a battle. And what we need to do is we need to be strengthening each other. Notice how Paul writes he wants to strengthen him. Look again at verse 2. He says, my purpose. What is my goal? What am I to do as a minister? How am I to serve? My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Well, Paul says, listen, I have a goal in my life. There's something that I want to do. I want to be available to the body of Christ. I want to look at people. I want to struggle with them. I want to strengthen them. And I want to do it in two ways, two practical ways, two ways that you can leave here today and be an encouragement in the body of Christ. Number one, encourage people. Notice what he says. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, encouraged in their hearts, in their heart, in their mind, in their soul. When life is really, really difficult, 
and they've lost the job and the relationship is stinky and all of them, the kids are having a bad day and your friends are doing this. In, in the midst of all of that, what Paul says, listen, I want, to, I want to come alongside of you. That's what the word means. The Greek word means to parakaleto. It means to come alongside of you. And I want to speak truth into your life. I want to encourage you. I want to build you up in the faith. That's what he's talking about right here. There's a commentator by the name of William Barclay. And what he does is he gives a secular usage of this word, encourage. And it's really interesting the way that he writes about it. And I think it provides insight into the meaning of the word and how we are to respond. This is what he writes. It's not on the screen, but I'm just going to give it to you. There was a Greek regiment who had lost heart and was utterly dejected. The general sent a leader to talk to it in such a purpose that they... Their courage would be reborn and a body of dispirited men become fit. That's why he sent it. Fit again in the battle to perform some type of heroic action. That is what paracoleto and courage means here. It is Paul's prayer that the church may be filled up with that kind of courage which can cope with any situation. As he's saying, the word means to come along and to encourage them. What happens is you see a person who's struggling. You see the need in their life. And rather than closing your heart to a brother or a sister in Christ, you respond in a way that says, I want to, I want to encourage them. I want to encourage them. I want to build them up. I don't want to close my heart off to them. Colossians chapter 4, verse 8. Notice how Paul responded to the needs of the people. You know, remember, they're separated by 1,300 miles. And, and most likely, the people of Colossae, they don't have text messages, they don't have phones. They're, they're probably beginning to wonder, you know, what, what happened to this? Is, is this guy ever going to come back? And, and notice what Paul writes at the end. He says, I'm sending him Tychicus to you. In other words, I'm going to send him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may be what? He may encourage your hearts. We don't know why. Epaphras is not going back. What we know is he's going to send Tychicus back. And I, I'm going to send him back because I want you to know exactly what's going on. And I want you to be encouraged in your hearts how we are doing. Do you realize that you have the power to encourage and people and build up people in a powerful way? A powerful way. So it's uh, the Master's Weekend. This is in honor of my friend Mike, uh, Mike Kilpatrick. So it's the Master's Weekend. Jordan Spieth is out there. He's golfing. He won, I think, last week. He's golfing again. And he said something really interesting in one of his um, interviews. He's talking about focus. And he said these, Bill Belichick said three words. And the three words were this. Eliminate the noise. Eliminate the noise. Jordan Spieth heard those three words from Bill Belichick, and he began to apply it into his life so that he could, what, become a better focused golfer. Isn't that interesting? Now, we might not know and understand that because we don't golf, but he gravitated to those three words as a way to apply to his life so he could focus and be a much better golfer. There's a quote, Leo Bascaglia, I think that's how you say his name. And this is what he said, and I think it's appropriate to where we find ourselves. He says, too often we underestimate the power of a touch, a smile, a kind word, a listening ear, an honest compliment, or the smallest act of caring, all of which have the potential to turn a life around. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? 
then why don't we speak kind words? Why don't we write more? Let me ask you something. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you collect notes? Anybody? Am I the only one that collects a positive note when you get it, you put it in a file? Man, I do. I've got notes for my kids. I've got them stored away. There are times I take out those notes and I read them. Why? Because they encourage me and they build me up. There's an 18-year-old girl by the name of Paige Hunter. And she was recently um, commended in the United Kingdom. And this is what she did. She lived in the area near Wearmouth Bridge in Northumbria. And basically, this bridge is a place where people would come and they would jump off the bridge and kill themselves. And what she did was she began to write notes. And she began to write notes and post them on the bridge. Forty notes that she would post on the bridge. Don't give up. Hang in there. Someone cares about you. And she was commended because they believed that at this particular point in time, she has saved six lives because of what she's done by posting a note of encouragement on, 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 the, on the rail of this bridge so that people would read that note and they would not give up. We have incredible potential, each one of us. And that potential is to build up and encourage and help one another. And that's what Paul's doing. Paul is saying, I want to struggle with you. I want to give you strength. And one of the ways that I can do that is to encourage you along the path. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says this. It's a beautiful verse. And this is what, this is what our prayer for us this morning is this. Let us not give up meeting together. As is the habit of son. Hmm. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? It's really easy to get out of the habit of going to church, punching a ticket, showing up. That's not the family of God. The family of God, we need each other. I need you. You need me. We need each other. We need to be encouraged together. And we need to be together so we can build up and encourage one another. Notice it says, as is the habit of some, let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We need to do that daily. We need to build up and encourage each other, a family of God, because life is stinky and life is difficult and we struggle. Especially now, right? So Paul says, listen, I'm entering into the struggle. I want to strengthen you. I'm going to encourage you. But notice else. Someone should be united in love. They will know we are Christians by our giving. They will know we are Christians by our love. That's what he writes. He says, I want you to be knit together in love. The verse says, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. The the thought behind the word united is this, that that we're, we're linked arms. We are linked arm in arm together. We are reporting for duty, linked arm together, because we need each other in the body of Christ and the family of God. Maybe a picture will help give you an idea of of what unity means. So we lived in Colorado. My in-laws lived in Colorado for many, many years. These are aspen trees. And what I learned about uh, aspen trees in Colorado is this. Um, when When they look at aspen trees, one aspen tree is not so much... Uh, by itself. It's, it's actually part of a larger organism. 
And a stand or a group of aspen trees is considered singular, a singular organism, with the main life force being underground in its extensive root system. So you can see all of these trees growing up, but underneath the ground, what is they are locked together, they are unified together so that they can withstand the rugged winds, they can withstand all of the life elements, they are locked together underneath so that they can withstand and help each other. That's an aspen tree, and there's a lot of trees like that. I think that's a picture of, of us in the, in the body of Christ, in the family. We're, we're linked together. We're linked arm in arm together so that we can help each other and encourage each other and build each other up in the family of God. Most every book in the Bible tells us to love one another. Not tear down, but to love one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. That's what Paul wrote. He says this. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. By the way, go back and and read all of the one another's in the Bible. There's a lot of one another's in the Bible. Gene Getz built a church, built an organizational structure of churches based upon the principles of the one another's. That's how they started their church, based upon the one another's, about how we're going to love, care, build up, admonish, pray for one another. And, and Paul says this, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, on another, honor one another above yourselves. Man, do you, do you love God's people? Or do you just tolerate them? You know what? We're stinky at times, aren't we? Sheep, man, my life sometimes doesn't measure up, and I make mistakes, and I get cross, and I get out of whack. But, but I need someone to come alongside of me, and I need someone to encourage me. And you say, listen, Clint, you're a little bit off track here. What are you doing? You get back on track. It, it's okay to admonish each other in the family of God, because we love each other and we care for each other and we want what's absolutely best. And if I'm going off and deviating in a place that's not right, I want someone to come alongside of me and say, hey, 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 how you doing? Can you get back on track here? We need that kind of love in the family of God. So Paul's saying, listen, I'm struggling with you. I'm wrestling with you. I want to strengthen you by encouraging you. I want us to be united in love. Why? Why does all of that happen? Why does Paul lay all of that out? Look at what he does in verses 2 and 3. Notice how he uh, unleashes this. Verse 2 says, so that, there's a purpose. We call that a purpose clause. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, now, I get it. I get it. I'm like you. Sometimes I read Paul's stuff and I'm going, okay, brother, you need to break it down a little bit. You need to help me out here. You know, Peter even says, you know, sometimes Paul writes in such a way that I don't really understand what he's talking about. What is, what is Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, the full riches of understanding the unveiling of the Messiah, the mystery, Christ, God incarnate. The, the, the idea of who he is, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are simply found in the unique person of Jesus Christ. And what he's doing, he's pointing us to what God desires to do in our lives, that God desires to transform us and change us on the inside. And what we have in the word of God, 
what we have in, in the person of Jesus, what we have in the spirit of God, what we have in the community of faith, what we have in the pastors and teachers and all of us gathering together, what we have is this common unity so that we can grow and help each other in the family of God grow to be what God wants us to be. And what Paul is saying, listen, I want my life. I want my teaching. I want my preaching. I want my testimony, my example. I want my letters to help people have a complete understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for my life. That's his goal, to point people ultimately to Jesus and what he's done in his life. Paul had a miraculous encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. His life is radically changed. And what he simply wants is this, I want people to know and understand how my life has been changed on the outside from, from rules and regulations to life-transforming power through the Spirit of God on the inside. And he wants people to know and understand that. And by the way, there's this thing called hidden treasures in Jesus. Are you plumbing the... And you're looking for and searching the hidden nuggets of God's treasures in Jesus? I hope so, because there's some richness there. The man by the name of George, here's an illustration that goes to this. A man by the name of George Owen Walton, he was born on May 15, 1907, Rocky Mountain, Virginia. He was an estate appraiser, and what he did is an estate appraiser. He had first dibs on rare coins, guns, jewelry, things like that, stamps, books. And so what he did was he built up quite a collection. Well, when Walton had an opportunity um, to purchase one of only five 1913 Liberty Head nickels ever minted. He jumped at the chance. He actually paid $3,750 for the treasure in 1945. And he told his family, listen, this is a fortune. This is going to be worth something in the future. But after Walton was killed in a car crash in 1962, somebody in the family had it appraised. And the appraisers came together and they said, you know what? That thing's not really worth a plum nickel wasn't worth anything. Well, eventually, Walton's nephew, Ryan Givens, inherited the nickel. And even though uh, it had been dismissed as a counterfeit, something told him he was not right. So in 2003, he found out that the other four 1913 Liberty Head nickels were on display, and they were offering a million dollars to find the fifth one. A million bucks to find the fifth one. He finds out about this, and he submits the nickel. And all of these experts gathered together, six of them. And they began to look at it and examine it. And they found out, guess what? It was the fifth nickel. It was the fifth nickel. Eventually, Givens sold the nickel for $3.1 million, 100 years after it was originally minted. Imagine that. A nickel hiding in some guy's basement somewhere, covered in dust, this hidden treasure that nobody thought was worth anything, all of a sudden is worth $3 million. My point in sharing that story is, do you find that nugget of treasure in the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for us? The Bible talks about, in this verse, these hidden treasures of Jesus, of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, as, as I began to seek the word of God and I began to seek the person of Jesus and allowing the spirit of God and the community of faith to come along and help me, I, I'm actually learning about who he is and what do you do for my life. And what the Bible says, listen, I want you to plumb the depths of the word of God for hidden treasures. The book of Proverbs, wisdom literature, 
the, the first eight or nine chapters talks about seeking wisdom. I, I'm amazed at how many times we, it, it talks about seeking wisdom. And in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 10, notice how he describes wisdom. He says this, Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with you. Am I plumbing the depths of God's word and the nature of who Jesus is for what he would have in my life? I think that's what he's saying. And, and would we choose that over rubies and silver? Or would we say, you know what, I, I want all the other things first. What is of worth and value in our lives? Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, he points to the value of our faith. Notice what he writes. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You and I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and our lives have value and meaning. And do we worship God for who he is? Do you love Jesus? I was reading through the Bible, and I came to Luke chapter 7. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house by the name of Simon. And they're all reclined around the table. And Jesus is sitting there, and all of a sudden, this woman with a bad reputation, and all the people in the town know who, who she is and what she's done. This woman with this bad reputation comes up, and she's standing at Jesus' feet, and all of a sudden, she just starts bawling and weeping. She's got this alabaster veil of, of, of perfume, and she just begins to weep. And tears are falling from her eyes and falling on the feet of Jesus, and she takes that, that perfume, and she begins to anoint the feet of Jesus. And everyone in the room are just appalled who this woman is and what she's doing. And then Peter tells a parable to, to Simon and the people there about debt. If you owe a lot of money and you owe a little bit of money and, and you're forgiven of the debt, who's going who's gonna to love the most? Well, the one who had the most to forgive. And he likened this debt, this sin, to this woman who was sitting at the feet of Jesus who absolutely loved him for what he would have done. Do we love Jesus in that manner, recognizing who he is and what he's done for us and forgiving us of our sin? That's how he wants to change and transform us on the inside because of what he's done. A man by the name of Bob Snyder wrote this about our Christian unity, about our faith, about us. Uh, encouraging one another and, and worshiping one another and being together. He said this, Christian unity is not found in uniformity organization or a particular church, but rather in Jesus. That's what he's talking about, the mystery of Christ and our commitment to his teachings and living them out in our lives. It is only as we join together unified in love with others who look different than we do. Isn't that the essence of love? By looking at someone who's very, very different than you, that's not like you, maybe the same political party, maybe the same beliefs, look at them and say, I love you for who you are and I accept you and I will bind arms with you because of what you've done. It is only as we join together with others who look different than we do, but share a common love and commitment to the truth that is in Jesus, that we know we have the completeness of the body of Christ. That's how we are bound together. So let me just, let me just draw this to a conclusion real quick here. 
Paul says, listen, I'm struggling with you. I'm wrestling with you. I'm with you in this battle. I, I want to strengthen you. I want to strengthen you because I, I want you to be an encouragement to one another. I want, I, want you to, I want you to be united in love toward one another so that we can have an understanding of the fullness of the mystery of Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord. Of, I, I want all that to be true and active in your life. But there's a reason why. Because you and I, when we do those things, we become a protective force in the church. Look at verse 4. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. In other words, there's a little bit of truth going on here. And what we don't want to do is we don't want you to be deceived in such a way that you think that this is really the truth. That's happening all over. So I, I came across this quote from an Atlanta preacher last week, Resurrection Sunday. His name is Senator Raph, Raphael Warnock, and he said this. He deleted this post. The meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He deleted that. He went on to describe what he meant, and this is what he meant. He says, whether you are a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Wait a minute. I thought the core of our faith was on the death, burial, resurrection, on the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that by placing our faith and our trust in Jesus and who he is and what he's done, that is how we find salvation. Listen, it is no doubt good for us to help each other, to encourage and serve one another. But our salvation demands that we bow the knee to Jesus because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be what? Saved in the name of Jesus. We have to hold to that standard. And what we don't want to do is we don't want our young people. We don't want our children to be deceived by all of this stuff. The elementary principles that are going on in our world about morality, about marriage, about sexuality. We are being bombarded. And we have got to root our families and root our people in the truth so that they are not deceived. We become a protection, a guard against the truth. Second, it becomes this. Look at verse 5. There's two military terms that he's going to use here. In other words, it has the idea of we are in a spiritual battle. Notice what he writes in verse 5. For though I'm absent in the body. Notice what he's saying. Listen, I'm not even, I'm not even near you. I'm 1,300 miles away from you. And I still love you and I still care for you. And I want what is absolutely best in your life. Shouldn't we want that from people who are 10, 15, 20 miles away in our own congregation? Absolutely. He says, though I'm absent from the body, I'm present with you in spirit and what? Delight to see how orderly you are. You know what the idea of orderly means? It means this. It means you're disciplined. And that's what we are doing. We are providing order and discipline in the family of God so we can help each other grow and mature in our faith. And we become a part of what God is doing in the body of Christ. It's an orderly line of soldiers. And they're getting ready to go to battle in their linked arms and they're orderly. And they become a protective measure in the family of God. I think that's what he's talking about. Provides protection. Provides discipline. Last thing is this, verse 5. Stability. There's There's a word that I've been using recently. And it's a really deep theological word. And it's this. It's called wanky. I'm obviously joking Things get a little wanky. Sometimes I get off kilter. Sometimes I get a little wanky in life. I'm trying to figure out a motorcycle. I'm going to say, listen, I'm, I'm not mechanical. I'm just not. So I'm trying to fix a carburetor, and, and I'm like three days into it. 
And I mean, it's, I'm almost losing my salvation because of this silly carburetor. I'm wanky on the carburetor. Notice what he says. He says this, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. That means stability. It means I'm not wanky. It means I want to be stable in life. And you and I have the privilege of when I get off track, and when you get off track, and when we all get off track and we get a little wanky, we have the privilege to come along and say, can I help you? What do you need? How can I help you today? How can I pray for you? How can I enter into your life? How can I sacrifice for you? What do you need from me? I want you to be firm in your faith. How can I help you today? That's what he's talking about. It's a military term, this idea of stability and solid in our faith. When we get a little bit off kilter at times. And listen, I'm joking about the carburetor. I am. But it's a challenge. Those things come into our life. And it's a challenge in our life that will sometimes get us off center. So, Paul says, listen, I'm entering into life. I'm struggling with you. I want to strengthen you. I'm going to strengthen you by encouraging one another. I'm going to strengthen you by by being united in love to each other so that we can have a full measure of knowing the beauty, the hidden treasures of Jesus. So that collectively, as a family of God, we protect from deception. We have this orderly life around us and we're firm in faith. Isn't that beauty? Isn't that awesome? Man, I love God's word. And I love for us to gather together and to be able to speak because we need to do that. It is tough out there right now. Life is changing radically. And we need each other in the family of God to lock arms and help build up and encourage one another. Father, you are good. Father, I thank you for the way that you transformed this man by the name of Apostle Paul. I thank you for the wonderful teaching that we have, the incredible, great privilege we have of locking arms with each other. And Father, I do pray that we would be a place of encouragement, that we would be a place united in love. Father, we would be accepting and embracing those who are different from us and that we would radically serve the way that Jesus served. Father, I thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. And Father, I pray your special blessing upon us this morning that we might live for you in the midst of the challenges and the darkness. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's dangerous is when it's only 11.30 and I'm at the microphone. I feel like I have a minute to say something. So I'm going to tell you a story that... Um, it was kind of funny to me. It, I was at my sister's apartment years ago, and uh, my whole family was there. And we had just eaten, and we had set some of the dishes that my mom was going to take back to her house outside covered in tinfoil. And uh, right before they left, my youngest brother started getting snarky and uh, forgetting his place and uh, started a wrestling match with me and one of my other brothers. And at some point, um, his pants came off. And, uh, and we're, so we're wrestling. And once that happened, he began to be less interested in wrestling. And was like, okay, where's my pants? And my mom had just opened the door to uh, go put something in the car. And so we threw the pants out the door. And uh, she was in an apartment complex on the top floor. And all the rest of the floors went down. It went over the railing. The pants did all the way to the bottom. And uh, so... It, <laughs> Dayton goes, he goes running out there thinking his pants are there, and they're not, obviously. So we shut and lock the door, of course, so he's out there pantsless now. I'm out there with him, 
And uh, I, well, I come back out rather, I sneak out and he had taken the tinfoil from the thing and wrapped it around his legs. So now he's standing there with a half a sheet of tinfoil wrapped around his legs as his pants. It was a great scene, but it gets better in that we look over the railing and just, I, I want to say 